Hey, this is Jen, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adults Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org forward slash young adults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Uh, Let's not do that. Let's not do that either. Uh, It is a joy weekly to gather with you all, and it is always a joy because we get to see old faces, and we get to see new faces, Um, and then we get to see faces that we haven't seen in a long time. And so I won't mention any names, uh, mainly because I didn't ask permission for me to say anything, Um, but a couple of months ago, we prayed for one of our volunteers uh, um, because her father uh, was in the hospital with COVID, and tonight is her first night back, and I'm not going to draw any attention to who she is. Um, but I am glad, we are glad to have you back here with us tonight to fellowship in Christ and for you to receive love from his body. Um, let us pray together and we'll gather and we'll dive in. Father God, we just thank you for tonight. We thank you that you continue to gather people to yourself. Uh, they're not here to hear me preach. They're not here for Target gift cards and bingo or... and. And, and I'm sure that some of us have other reasons why we're here, and, and they're not bad reasons. Maybe we want just community and fellowship, or we want to find someone to date, or we want someone to hang out with on Sundays, or whatever we might be, Lord, would you just show yourself to be the main reason why we're here? That you would prove to be the reason that supersedes all other reasons. Because all those things are important, but without you, none of those things matter. Those things provide fulfillment, but you provide life. So we find that in you tonight. Would you reveal yourself? Would your Holy Spirit make your face shine clearly as we engage in your word? Would you allow us to be open with our hearts and our, would you open our spirits and our minds to be receptive to your loving, powerful, transformative word? Do it, please. Because I can't, Father. I can't implant your words in their hearts. Only you can. So would you do the work that you promised you would do? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so we're going to be jumping back into uh, the book of John. And this will will be for the remainder of the year, God willing, unless we somehow feel led to do another mini-series. But listen, we've only gotten through, uh, we're about to finish the sixth chapter tonight. And there's 21 chapters in the book of John. So we have a lot to cover. And uh, I'm hoping to just spend some time doing that. Um, so just to give us a, a contextual recap of where we were uh, about maybe a month or two ago, Caleb uh, preached a message uh, uh, starting off uh, halfway through chapter six, and he was focusing on verses 25 through 59. And Caleb, I'm sorry for making you preach almost 30 verses. I apologize. We love you, but you did a great job. And then you can go back and you can podcast that if you've missed that, or if you want to just kind of catch up to where we are. But Caleb covered chapter six, and what has happened throughout chapter six is Jesus had just fed thousands and thousands of men, women, and children uh, on the side of a mountain, and he fed them uh, loaves of bread and fish, and so they come down, they disperse, he takes a boat with his, well, he walks on water, and he meets his disciples as they're crossing the, uh, the sea, and there's a storm happening, he meets with them, tells them not to fear, they cross the sea, they get to the city called Capernaum, and as they get to the city, he begins to teach very boldly now, his 
his ministry is starting to ramp up and he's telling them, listen, I am the bread of life. This is one of the seven I am statements you see throughout the book of John. And he says, I am the bread of life. I am the only way for you to gain salvation. And instead of him being met with joyous praise and worship and thankfulness, they begin to mock him. They begin to grumble and they begin to question, isn't this that dude from that town that's born to these lowly parents? He's our salvation. He's the guy we're supposed to follow in through all of this. And eventually this huge fight breaks out between the crowds and he turns to them and instead of breaking up the fight, he just says emphatically again, listen, I am your salvation. I am the thing that you must feast on for you to live forever. Here's something that we need to remember as we read all the time of Jesus' teachings. We've created a version of Jesus, unfortunately, um, that is quite powerless. Uh, Because a main feature of Jesus' teaching is that he was a comedian. No, no, that's not right. He was, uh, he just told you how to feel good. Well, no, uh, no, actually, a main feature of Jesus' teaching is that he was confrontational. See, we misunderstand Jesus often because we believe that for him to confront brokenness requires him to be passive and, and bashful. And we hear the word confrontation, don't you feel like it's a negative word? And, and you'd, be val- you'd be right. I, I guess I understand why it would have a negative value attached to it because the reality is that when we engage in confrontation, it's usually not in the right way. We engage in confrontation because when we see a problem, we address it immediately and not in the most loving of ways. And we usually want the outcome or the, de- the desire of our outcome is that it would work out in our favor. We want you to do what we think that you should be doing. And then we four, we fight. But every time we see Jesus confront someone, whether it's a Pharisee, a bystander, a wanderer, or his own disciples, he does it to address something that is acting as an obstacle in that person living out the life that God desires them to live. Is that negative? I wouldn't say so. In fact, Jesus' confrontation is part of his expression of his love towards you and me because he wants to remove or call us away from the things that are robbing us of receiving all that he intends for us through him. But the problem isn't that we're unwilling to do confrontation. The problem is that we, if we don't hear what we're being confronted about, just look the other way. It's why we advocate for things like you do you and and I'll do me. Because in a world of relativism, where my truth is no more or less than your truth, we're just left to live a life of our own making, right? I do my thing here, you do your thing there. You can't tell me what to do and I can't tell you what to do. I mean, this is why you see so much bickering happening on Twitter all the time. Because like, watch, we'll, we'll, we'll say we're a tolerant people. And I don't mean just Christians. I mean, whatever camp, whatever section, whatever circle of people, we're tolerant. And we expect you to be tolerant. And we'll preach that message until we can't breathe and preach that message anymore until someone critiques your message and then suddenly we spend all our time making sure they know how intolerant they are, only proving how much more so we are intolerant. It's just a circle of intolerance. And the main reason for this is because we live in a world of just thin ideas. Many of us don't really know why we believe what we believe. Like if I were to ask you just point blank, why do you follow Jesus? How many of you would be able to provide 
A legitimate answer. How many of you would say, well, you know, it's kind of what I've known my whole life. Uh, I've gone to church my whole life with my parents, and I'm just kind of here because I just, this is the next step, right? Like, it's like, this is what we're supposed to do. Well, you know, honestly, it's better than going, get drunk on Friday or Thursday. I'm just going to just be here. But the thing is that we live in this really hyper-performative world, right? Where and the reason we, we, we hold these ideas really loosely, these thoughts, these beliefs really loosely, because if we hold too hard onto certain beliefs, we'll be condemned, right? That's why we're so afraid to even say, I'm a Christian, or I'm a liberal, or I'm a conservative, because there's these ideas tied to them, and you're like, well, uh, I'm just really in the middle, you know? I don't really follow this one or that one. I like this here a little bit there because we don't want to be condemned and have our image ruined. So instead we hold these loose and thin ideas that are just easily interchangeable and, and the moment it doesn't benefit us, what do we do? Just get rid of it. Like, okay, I gotta move this next thing. Here I am, put my new pants on and this is who I am. I am conservative man or I am liberal person. Like that's, like that's what we just try to do. But Jesus doesn't operate in these categories. His categories are not fast and loose. No, when we see the teachings of Jesus, he makes large and strong and beautiful claims that require deep-rooted belief. But in order for us to obtain the wonders of being a disciple of Jesus, we must con- he, Jesus, must confront the parts of our hearts that are yet not conformed to his reflection. That's exactly what we see here. Let's start again, verse 60. Why many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? You see, prior to verse 60, Jesus was talking to a general Jewish crowd in verses 25 to 59. He just says, and he spoke to the crowd, and he spoke to the crowd, and he spoke to the crowd. But as Jesus was telling them that he was the bread of life, and that Moses was not their salvation, but that he is the greater Moses, and that in order for them to obtain eternal life, they had to accept Jesus as Savior, the crowds weren't happy about this. But they weren't the only ones that weren't happy. Verse 60, who does he say he's talking to? When many of his who? Disciples. And we're not talking about the 12 disciples that we read about, you know, John, Luke. and you know, We're talking about, Thomas. Anyway, I always forget that all the gospels are not written by apostles. But anyway, uh, not the 12 disciples that we read about in the gospels, but it's a religious crowd that claimed that Jesus was their rabbi. So there are people that said, I'm gonna follow Jesus. These are the people he's talking to. And so after hearing Jesus teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, they begin to do exactly what the regular crowds are doing. They begin to grumble. And it's interesting that of all the people that would grumble at a teaching of their rabbi would be who? The last people you would expect is the disciples. Because here's the thing. When he was casting out demons, man, they were pumped. They're like, that's my man. When he fed 5,000 people and and, and 1,000 men and including, and then like 15,000, let's say 15,000 people, they were like, yeah, I'm hungry. Like, you know, it's like imagine getting Chipotle like endlessly. Like you're like, that's what's up. I can follow this guy. He's hooking me up with food all the time. He was really happy. They were really happy and amazed when when he started, uh, when people started being able to see again, when the lame were able to walk. And yet, when Jesus begins to say, I am the only way for you to gain salvation. What did they respond with? No, hold on, wait a second. I don't know about that. I like you here. This might be a line I'm not willing to cross. 
Now, granted, what Jesus was saying was kind of a scandalous statement because at the, at, at, right before this, he's talking about eating flesh and drinking blood, which I don't know if you know what that means. That means cannibalism. That's a no-no. You don't got to be a Jew for that to be a no-no. That's just a human no-no, okay? Like, we're not out here trying to advocate for human cannibalism, right? And that's not what we do in communion. But here's the thing. Once they heard what Jesus was teaching about he was the, how he was the bread of life, what they should have remembered was that how in Exodus, God provided manna for that salvation and that Jesus is our salvation. Once they heard that Jesus would provide eternal life, they, would, they were intended to remember the prophets of old and how there was an expectation of everlasting life with God. Jesus was not advocating for cannibalism to them or to us. He was saying that he could provide satisfaction that no earthly thing could do, and yet the disciples grumble. It seems that they couldn't or wouldn't understand what Jesus was really saying. They don't ask him more questions. They don't say, hey, can you clear this up for me? I hear you saying that we're supposed to eat you. Like, can you tell me why that's even a good idea? It's only enough of you to go around. Like, how do we do this? But they don't ask questions. They don't want explanations. They start saying, I don't know if I can follow you anymore. You were good here and now about here. And then in verses 61 and 62, he begins to do what Jesus always does. He examines their hearts and begins to challenge them. 61 and 62, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Like, what was keeping the disciples from believing in the teachings of Jesus? Like, what offended them? We have to ask ourselves, what offended them so much about what Jesus was saying? You see, they couldn't understand what Jesus was teaching because they didn't want to hear what he was saying. The crowds were not the, were not the only ones who struggled with the teachings of Jesus, but there were things in the hearts of the disciples that served as blockades to hearing the voice of their rabbi. You see, in just in chapter 6 alone, we see what those people, what the crowds and what the Jews and what the religious crowd were really after. Again, they were happy with him when he fed them. He was, they were really okay with it. They wanted Jesus to be their political figure and were only willing to elevate him as king and prophet so that he could do their bidding. They wanted Jesus more for his miracles than for Jesus. They enjoyed Jesus when he didn't ask anything of them. He was ha they were happy when Jesus was doing all the work. They liked Jesus when he didn't challenge their spiritual blindness, and they were offended when he, when, they said, when he said that Moses wasn't their salvation. They enjoyed Jesus when they thought they could still live the life they were living, but just sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on top of it. Do you hear that? How easy it is for any of us to think that the way of Jesus is simple if we just sprinkle a little bit of that and a little bit of this. You see, the Greek here for do you take offense is meant to be read as why do you not believe? You see, Jesus doesn't just stop there, but he says that what you will do, like he says to them, if you have a problem with this, what are you gonna do when you see me in glory? And what they don't understand is what he means by that. Because what he's saying is, man, when I reach my full glory, it is going to be when I'm on the cross. And I don't know about you guys, but there is nothing glorifying about being on a cross. 
It was a beggar's death. It was a thief's death. It wasn't meant for the king of kings, but he would be there humiliated because in his humiliation, you and I are saved and we are now freed from our sin. And that's where he gains his most glory because he's accomplished the mission that he was meant to do. So he says, man, you can't follow me here. How in the world do you think you're going to follow me when I'm over here? And that's just true of us today. And as I read this, I have to ask myself, Man, when is the last time I felt challenged by Jesus? Like, when was the last time I felt convicted by his teachings and realized I need to change directions? You see, it's really easy to love Jesus when he doesn't challenge you, right? We are much like the disciples. We follow Jesus when things go well for us. We follow Jesus when we experience or see him do miracles. We love Jesus when we can use him for our own personal gain, right? We even love Jesus when we can use him to say that we're holier than others. Oh, you, you do that? You're not, Muslim, you're not Muslim or Christian, but I do this. My Jesus loves it when I do this, but man, he does not love it when you do that. We love Jesus when, when he can then serve our political agendas. We love Jesus when he can be used to justify why we don't mingle with certain people. Sorry, Jesus wouldn't want you at this table. But the moment we hear Jesus say otherwise, what do we do? We become skeptical and we question if Jesus is even worth following anymore. Like, Jesus, I was vibing with you before, but not now. Like, you're okay if that person sits with us? Nah, man, I ain't about that. But we're supposed to love that person? Ah, no, I don't know about that. You see what he does? You see what she's doing? Jesus is not an idol, guys. See, the moment... We begin to grumble at the teachings of Jesus is when we're becoming unwilling to be challenged by him. Because it's, it's, it's part of his role as a rabbi, right? He doesn't just teach you so you can learn something because that doesn't make any difference in our hearts, right? Like, we can learn all that we want, but that doesn't make us anyone different. He sees what's in our hearts and knows what is blocking us from hearing his voice. So he has to confront our idols that are in our hearts so that, that, that cause us to disfigure the person of Jesus in our hearts and our minds so that we could see him clearly and live out the life that he set out before us. Here's the thing. If the words of Jesus never challenge you, it might be because you follow a Jesus of your own making. Jesus is not an idol. He is not dead. He is not a puppet that you pull the strings for. He is Lord. He is king. Jesus is eternal life. This isn't about, about preferences and autonomy, y'all. This is about him turning our grumbling into praise. But why is it so hard, right? Why is it so hard for us? Because maybe you've been here for a long time, and I don't mean here at Young Adults, but maybe you've been in the faith for a long time, and you're just frustrated that there seems to be these constant idols in, my, in our hearts that trip us up. Or maybe you're a newer Christian, and, and you start to hear me say these things, and you're like, ah, Jesus is starting to confront these things in my heart right now, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do with it. Do I run away? Do I, do I stay? What do I do? The truth is this. The gospel is a foreign language to our hearts. And while Jesus does the work of confronting the idols in our hearts, he doesn't do that work alone. There's another part of, of the Godhead, of the Trinity, that is crucial in helping us understand the language of the gospel. You see here in verse 63, what does it say? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken, Jesus says, to you are spirit and life. 
a really cryptic thing to say, right? It's like, okay, I don't know what you're trying to say here. But Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit gives life and the flesh is of no help. That's what he says. And I, I want us to be very careful about what we take away from this reading because on, on uh, face value, just at surface level, what it can mean is that the flesh, the human body is terrible and that's a bad thing. But that's not true, right? Like God created our bodies to be a good thing. Now, sin did taint our bodies, our reasoning, our thinking, our feelings, our words, our, our actions. Everything about our body has been marred by sin. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is saying that flesh is bad. Because let's not forget, Jesus is what? Is, came in the flesh. He is the incarnate word of God. He Actually, if you don't know this, as we speak, Jesus sits in heaven on the throne, right hand of God, with his body. Human body. So what does that mean? The flesh, our body, is not bad. But what it's not useful for is helping us become more like Jesus. You see, as he says this, that the spirit is, of, the spirit is what gives life and the body is of no help, he's confronting one thing. He's confronting our human efforts. He's not against people working and he's not against human work, but he's revealing that we do not gain eternal life through our efforts. We don't work for our salvation. We don't strive for it. We are not meant to prove ourselves worthy of it. Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit, it was brings you from death to life spiritually and physically. But you see, Jewish boys and girls would have spent hours before the Torah. Like Jesus, Jewish boys would have read hours of the Torah and both boys and girls in the Jewish culture would have spent hours in the synagogue and they would have memorized the, the Old Testament and, and, and yet the crowds and the disciples could not understand for the life of them what Jesus was saying. And we as disciples of Jesus can fall into the same trap of assuming that knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus are the same thing. Y'all hear me on that? That we fall into the trap of thinking knowing Jesus knowing connection, Jesus, is the same as knowing about him, opening up a textbook and reading a couple facts about him. And they're not. See, the, the Jews figured that if they could know more about God, they could claim it and, and wield it and use it against others. But God is not just someone we're meant to know about. He is in, an intimate God that is meant to be with. You see, in the 1500s, there began this uh, movement called the Scientific Revolution. And if you've uh, ever been in school, you might, might remember it. And it's where we meet people like Galileo and Copernicus. Cop Copernicus. There we go. I was good at history, don't worry. Isaac Newton, right? All these figures. And we started plotting as humans, the human anatomy, and we continue to learn how the way the universe works. But, but for all the advances that we gained in the scientific revolution and the age of enlightenment, the idea of the Holy Spirit became being intricately involved in the, in the Christian life began to fade away. The Holy Spirit didn't have a role in the church at that point. Because all of life, according to these thought movements, said one thing. We can know everything there is about the universe through reason and logic. Belief in the spiritual world that's for an idiot. So that's what you want to do? You're a dum-dum, but we're going to go on and advance with the human race. But unfortunately, these thoughts didn't just stop uh, at the secular level. They, they, they broke through the walls of Christianity and through uh, Christian thought and practice. 
And, and they began to say things like, well, the, the parts that we can explain in the Bible, they're literal and concrete. Jesus did teach this and Jesus did teach that. Oh, but, but anything that we can't explain, it's just a metaphor or analogy. He didn't really walk on water. It's just the way that the, the gospel writers are saying that God really conquers and walks over water, over our fears. It'd be things like that because they just couldn't make sense of it. And so both culture and the church made a God out of reasoning and logic. And it's a major reason why today, as we speak, there's a mass exodus of people leaving churches. Because the Christian faith cannot be concretely defined solely by logic and reason. It's not about doing this, therefore getting this. If I do X, therefore I get Y. In fact, if you think about your salvation, uh, and if you're willing to admit this with me, I don't know if you've had this thought, do you know why Jesus saved you? I don't know why he saved me. There's no lo like logic to it. I'm not, I'm not the most this, I'm not the most that. Like, like there are much better people that could probably make an impact in the kingdom of God. He wouldn't need me. That's the way we look at it. But you see, Jesus wasn't here talking about human efforts in the sense of like, I gotta work for my salvation only. But what he was not promising was behavior modification. See, Jesus was not advocating the thought of being a good person. See, Jesus states that the spirit gives life, that his words, Jesus' words give our, our spirit and life. And Jesus speaks and the Holy Spirit then pierces our very heart. You see, in this very cultural moment, we have so many resources at our fingertips. We have blogs and articles releasing something every day about Christian life and thought. We have thousands of books talking about spiritual formation. We have countless podcasts dedicated to telling you why Jesus is the best thing ever. And we have hours upon hours of YouTube videos that hold sermons for us to watch and listen. And yet, how many of us today would be willing to say, my faith is anything but vibrant? I mean, how many of us know somebody who is deconstructing? Anybody? There's a guy I listen to sometimes, and his name is Manny Rango, and he wrote this, and it felt quite convicting as I read it. He said, if the faith we've helped build within people can be this easily deconstructed, maybe we didn't build it correctly. Maybe we need to change. Maybe what we built wasn't stable if it's this easily deconstructed. Because what's happened is, is we've made the Christian faith a religion about only gaining knowledge. But Jesus says that being his disciples requires not more biblical knowledge per se. And that's not the bad thing. So if you read your Bible, it is good. It is good that we read our Bibles and we should be in it every day. But what he's saying is without the spirit, it is all in vain. Because knowledge only leads to behavior modification. But the Holy Spirit brings spiritual renewal. And again, this is not a knock on podcasts and books and the internet. Like, like uh, you just, you know, like those are good things or gifts that God's given us. But the Holy Spirit is the one that helps us make sense of it all. He provides clarity and understanding. He is the one who helps us understand right from wrong, discerning right teaching from wrong teaching. He's the one that we depend on to have deep rooted faith. These help, these resources are helpful, but they are not essential. This is why we need to continually invite the Holy Spirit into our day-to-day -day life. You know, like this is, and this is my, my sole attempt of staying relevant. It should be much like that song that you might have seen on TikTok. 
Holy Spirit, activate, activate, activate. Holy Spirit, like, but it's not really like that. But like, but like you're meant to invite the Holy Spirit into your day-to-day life. Like, like every time you open up your Bible, pray that the Holy Spirit would help you understand it. Because there's, there's, there are parts of the Bible that make no sense. Have you read some of the Old Testament? Have you read Numbers? Have you read Leviticus? But all of Scripture points us to Jesus, and we need the Holy Spirit to help us understand that. We need the Holy Spirit to help us know who the Father truly is. You see, human reason, as, as a theologian, Herman Werdebus puts it, unaided, human reason unaided by the Spirit is unable to discern what is spiritual. Can I help you see what Jesus is teaching? Or every time that the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin or unwise decisions, ask him, help me repent and not run away. The Holy Spirit is not stingy. He desires to help you and me to comfort us, to confront us so that we would look more like Jesus because the Holy Spirit works from the inside out. Every other thought process, approach, and creed tries an outward, uh, 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 outward inward approach. But God has to revive us from the inside out. He has to revive the soul that is condemned by our sins and trespasses. This is what makes a true disciple of Jesus. A true disciple of Jesus is not one who has memorized the whole Bible and gone to seminary. I went to seminary. That's not what makes me a Christian. But it's the Christian who is, by God's grace, brought from life to death and relies on God continually to give them life. That is who a disciple of Jesus is because the work is no longer about what you have done. The work is about what he has done for us. That is what makes a disciple. The spirit gives life. The flesh is of no help because the spirit is the one who helps us point our entire life to Jesus. And may we ever learn more and more to depend on him and not our own efforts. Life comes from God. Our salvation comes from God. The goodness that we crave comes from our good God, even when we are undeserving of it. And as we finish the remaining part of this message, we're about to see Jesus administer a dose of this goodness that we're craving for. There's one last thing that Jesus needs to confront in their lives. He's confronted their heart idols. He's confronted their human efforts. But there's one more thing he has to confront. It's their belief in him. Read verse 66 with me. After this, many of his disciples, not all, but many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They left. They heard his teachings and they were confronted with the truth and they left. And there's something interesting about the way that the Greek is written out here. Here it just says that they left. They heard it, they turned back and no longer walked. But, but the way it's phrased as is they saw him, they heard it, they left, went back and picked up what they had left down and continued to keep going. That's a scary thing. It's a scary thing that what they had just left behind, that Jesus had just taken them from, they went back to it. Verse 67 says, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? 
See, Jesus begins this whole section talking about, talking to the crowds and then the disciples, and now he's talking to a small group of the 12. The author is having us focus our attention between Jesus and these true disciples. Because Jesus doesn't just preach to non-believers, he actually focuses on preaching also to his disciples. He asks them a question that requires a response. Do you want to go away as well? Now, he isn't worried about the answer, okay? He's, he's not like, hey, man, please tell me you're not leaving. They left. I need my homies. Like, I need you to stay with me, with me. Come on. We, we, come on. I need, I need my posse to stay. That's not what he's saying. But he's also not being cold and callous and being like, go ahead. You want to do it? The door's right there. I ain't stopping you. Go ahead. No, no, no. He's not asking for himself. He's asking the question more for their sake than for his own because what the disciples finally need to reconcile with is, is Jesus worth following? Jesus Jesus knows the answer. He's like, I'm eternal life, bro. I'm the answer. Am I worth following? Because there is a cost. Okay, I, I gotta be honest with you. If you've walked in here and thinking that there is no cost to being a disciple of Jesus, I'm sorry. There's, there's, a, there's a massive cost. And many of these disciples have said, it is not worth the cost. And then right after he says it, you see the response of the apostle Peter. Well, look, well, look what he says. Now this is Peter, right? Like, like out of all the disciples, it's gotta be Peter. Peter gets it right though. He's like, yo, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He gets the answer right. He recognized that Jesus has the words for eternal life, that he is the Holy One of God, that he is set apart for the purposes of God the Father. This is actually a very unique title. It's only one of two places that, he, that Jesus has ever called this in the entire Old Testament, I mean, New Testament. But what would drive Peter to say this? How did Peter know this was the answer? What allowed him to believe this was true of Jesus that the other disciples could not believe? The 12 disciples spent hours and hours with Jesus. There would have been times in their journey where Jesus would have to confront them and correct them, but there would be times where he would have to encourage them and uplift them. There would be times that Jesus and his disciples would laugh and sometimes they would cry. Because for Peter, Jesus was somebody he loved because Jesus was someone he knew. It wasn't he didn't know about Jesus. He knew this Jesus. And this is what gave him the ability to say these things about Jesus because whether or not Peter understood everything he was saying, because he didn't, he was being formed. He was being shaped and molded by every encounter that he had with Jesus because the power of the gospel is not merely just a message that Jesus preaches and communicates, but it's the message that completely, radically transforms everything about the person who receives it. See, Peter would have had seen thousands upon thousands of people leave in that moment. And I wonder if he would not have been tempted to leave too. But what stopped him? It was Jesus' confrontation, wasn't it? Right? He's seeing his disciples. They're leaving. He looks at the 12. He goes... Them or me? Do you want to go back to what you were? Or do you want to keep going to eternal life? 
You see, Jesus does not, he confronts us where we are not yet conformed and submitted to him. Now, why does that matter though? Because the places that are not yet conformed and submitted to Christ will, for the rest of your lives, rob you and me of the beauty of a relationship with Jesus. You see, the reasons why the disciples left is because they misunderstood the cost of following Jesus. They thought following Jesus would cost them everything that was good in their lives. But you see, Jesus will cost us everything. It will cost us our fears. It will cost us our anxieties. It will cost us our selfishness. It will, it will, it will, it will cost us our ambitions. The disciples thought that following Jesus meant that they would have to give up everything that they had. But in the economy of God, everything that you and I bring to the table is rubbish in comparison to the salvation we gain in Christ. Because in the economy of Jesus, when we bring something to the exchange table, we trade in our anxieties for his peace, hate hatred for love, revenge for mercy, orphans into sons and daughters, addictions for eternal satisfaction. He'll chip away at the resentment you hold towards your parents for the way they hurt you. He'll chip away at everything in you that doesn't reflect Jesus because it is only in Jesus where we find life. Every year, the Mosaic staff takes two and a half days to take a retreat. Leave on a Monday morning, come back on a Wednesday afternoon. And we um, were at the first evening session and Josh Taylor, one of our elders and his wife Kelly, were just talking and I just felt prompted by the Lord to ask the Holy Spirit to experience the love of God. You might think that's an odd thing, right? Caesar, you're always preaching about God's love. See, theologically and intellectually, I know God loves me. Why? I don't know, but he, I just know he does. But for the longest time, I don't think I ever actually knew what it felt like or experienced God's love. This might be some of you in the room too. And I'm not trying to make a king out of feelings and sensations and emotions because that, that gets us into trouble. But there really is a truly beautiful part of the Christian life that is experiential in nature. And it can't be satisfied with just knowing things like facts. And so we were sent away to do a prayer prompt. It had nothing to do with my original prompting. Like, I, it had to do, I kind of forget in this moment. And I remember as we were being sent away, I just threw out this 20-second prayer. I said, God, I have nothing else to give you. Your Holy Spirit has to just show up and do something because I don't know what else to do. I've done all I can, and honestly, I'm not sure what more you can ask of me. I'm not sure I'll ever truly feel like you love me. And then we go and we're doing this activity and we're all in our separate spaces and I'm writing and there's no card and I can't tell you or explain to you logically or in reason. I can't write it out for you. I, 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 I can best try to summate this, this story for you, but somewhere in the midst of this activity, he begins to do something in my heart where I become undone. Something had truly shifted inside of me. I, can't, I really can't explain it. And I, can't, I just began to weep. But before, where I usually thought about this, where I, I, I yearned for God's love and I would cry in sadness because I couldn't feel it. This time, for the first time ever, I began to cry tears of unfiltered joy. 
Because for the first time ever, I felt at 27 years old, as a director of Mosaic, of Mosaic Young Adults, I want you to know this in, in the most humbling of ways, I finally experienced what something he had promised me, that I would experience his love. And all I could do was say, praise Jesus. Praise you. You do hear me. You do love me. You're actually here. And somewhere in the process of being a disciple of Jesus, I had for too long held on to my idol of human effort. If I perform enough, Jesus will comply with my desires. If I'm good enough, he'll give me love, mercy, and peace. And you know what? That night, Jesus had to confront me. He had to confront everything that I had built. Sorry, an ad came up on my computer. (laughs) (laughs) He had to confront me because I didn't just pray that prayer and that was it. I had to turn away from the voice of Satan. I had to shut off the teachings of this world. I had to invite the Holy Spirit into that moment so that he could show and direct me to the Father's love. So why am I telling you this? Because a major reason why we struggle with confrontation from God is because it takes time. It's not an easy process. My story was about 20 seconds of a prayer. But that was 20-second prayer of of years. It was 20 seconds of years of yearning for God to finally show up in the way he said he would. Years for him to break my heart, to humble me to the point where I finally said, I cannot do it with you. And he goes, finally, you get it. What anchors our beliefs in Jesus are the constant forming and reforming of our hearts, confrontation and examination of our hearts and our minds. And the same thing is true of our belief in Jesus. But we often miss out on this relationship with him because we think, again, he's just something we add to this life. The Jewish people thought this, the religious crowd, the followers. But Jesus is not someone we add to our life. He's not part of our identity. Jesus is all or nothing. And that's why he asks do you want to go away as well? But may our response be like Peter. Where else can I go? Jesus wants us to experience the life he has for you through salvation in him, but that requires him to confront us in the hardest parts of our hearts. It will be tempting to hide from it. It will be tempting to push back and get defensive, but, but please, Please, if you hear anything tonight, hear this. Jesus is not confronting you so that he can belittle you or ridicule you. He's not doing it to shame you and to make you shrivel into a state of nothingness. No, he's doing it to rob the things that are robbing you of life. So when Jesus confronts you, which I'm sure that he's doing many of you right now, he's doing it because he loves you. He is life. He wants you to experience that. And glory be to God that he will do this confronting, not just today, not just tomorrow, but for all the days of our lives until we reach glory with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your teachings are true, that you do not hold back the punches. 
We thank you that you, that you are loving (laughs) because it is only a loving king that comes to a wayward people and would die for them. Not only did you die for us, but you continually come and allow us to batter you with our questions and our doubts and our insults and our skepticism, and yet you say, no, come, come. I have to confront this. I have to confront this. I have to confront this because I want you to experience me. Lord, I pray so deeply and so earnestly, not just for my heart, but for everyone here tonight, that we would come to you. Not run from the confrontation, but run into and know that we will be met not with belittling words, but with a loving embrace. That we would finally come to the end of ourselves. I pray that there's anyone here tonight, Lord Jesus, that if they have not placed their faith in you, that you would show them that they are at the end of their rope. Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Let that be true tonight, Father. May we come to you. Even those of us who have been walking in the faith, or there's any parts of our hearts that have not yielded to your teaching, to your way, Lord, may we give that up so that we would submit and follow the path to righteousness and life and freedom in you. Praise all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults Podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use this message you just received and direct your heart completely towards Him. If you want to hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.